The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Looking at Philippians chapter 1, and the title of the message this day is The Difference That Attracts. I'm presupposing this morning that as believers, we understand that for those who have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the dear son, that there ought to be a difference in the lives of those who name the name of Christ. That the world should be able to take note, whether it is in the mundane things of life as believers or in the middle of a pandemic. And so we're going to talk about living a life that's different and so different that it attracts the world around us. What does this look like when the, when the rubber meets the road? What is it about the Christian life and the Christian community that should be so different and unusual from the world that the world, whether they understand it or, or don't like it, must take note that there's something happening in that community. And here's what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1. Now, before we go there, just remember, and I know you're probably thinking, oh, here comes a review again. You can probably lip these things with me this morning. But keep in mind that where we find ourselves, that Paul is writing to the, the church in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony loving everything Roman. Not only that, this letter is full of affection and warmth for these people. There's a partnership that they have with Paul in gospel ministry. And you can feel it and sense it in how he speaks to them, his prayer for them, and his instruction. And then I want you to realize as we go through the text this morning, and as we really unfold the book of Philippians, this group of believers were a very eclectic group. You remember from Acts chapter 16 when Paul is talking about first showing up at Philippi and and the folks that he meets, the first was a Middle Eastern wealthy woman named Lydia, right? She was the first one that came to Christ. Then we have a slave girl who at first was an annoyance to Paul. She was a fortune teller. She had a different spirit. Um, We don't know where she came from, her roots. We do know that she was exploited and had lots of baggage. And then we're introduced to the the European of the bunch, the the working class Philippian jailer. And so this group is very eclectic. And so when Paul was in Philippi to start this church, he begins by talking to Lydia, by seeing the salvation of a slave girl, and then he ends up in prison. And now it's been about four years, and, and guess what? Paul is in prison again. It seems to be just his course of life as he stands for Christ that he finds his way in trouble. And so in Philippians 1 verse 27, here's what he says. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. The word conversation, of course, is our manner of life. But as we really look at this sentence, what Paul says to this church literally in that first phrase is this. I want you to behave as citizens. Literally, that's what he says. Behave as citizens. Now, we can understand this as citizens ourselves. When I was 17 years old, 
uh, back growing up in Cleveland, one of the most popular songs back then was by a guy named Lee Greenwood. And the song was, I'm proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free. It was big. It was huge back in 1985, 1986. And, and Ronald Reagan was the president, and the Soviet Union was the evil empire, and, and, and the Rambo movies were out, and all this propaganda. I joined the military thinking about my duty as a citizen. And so I get that. I understand that. Several years ago, uh, we became citizens of the true, north, strong, and free. And we took the test, and we passed the test. And I'm somewhat bitter still because Kim only missed one question, and I didn't do as well, but I still passed. And so this idea of being a citizen, we get it. We understand it. And, and whether it's the pride of an American or the politeness of a Canadian, sorry, right? We understand that citizenship has privileges and responsibility. But I want you to know, when Paul writes to this church, this Roman colony, and he says, behave as citizens, this statement resonates with the, the church in Philippi. They were a colony of Rome. They were a, a, an off branch, an outpost of Rome itself, they considered their soil, although they were not in Rome, as Italian soil. And they knew that being a Roman citizen, it meant something. There was pride and privilege in that. We see that even in the New Testament. If you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 22, we won't turn there, but you can see the story. Believe it or not, Paul is in trouble again for preaching the gospel, they strip his back bare, and they're, they're getting ready to scourge him. And right before the scourge flies, Paul says, hey, just time out, question for you. Is it lawful to scourge a Roman uncondemned? And, and the chief captain, <laughs> he pauses, he says, wait a minute, I didn't know you were Roman. With a great sum of money, I obtained my citizenship. And Paul says this, not me, I was born free. And so there's a sense of the, the magnitude of being a citizen, knowing it was a privilege, but that privilege also had responsibilities. So Paul says, behave as citizens, right? that you have a privilege of being a citizen, but there's responsibility in that as well. And then he tacks this on. Behave as citizens that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Behave as citizens, now to the believer, more than just a citizen of Rome, more than just a citizen of Canada, a citizen of heaven. Behave as a good citizen who is now translated into this kingdom. This is not our home, this is not our world, but live and behave in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Now, as soon as I read that, and as soon as I say that, we must all acknowledge that there is a sense that no one, no one is worthy of the gospel. This is why we call it good news. 
This is why Paul describes it as an unspeakable gift. Why? Because we were enemy combatants of God. We ran our own way. We were rebels of his, and we did not deserve anything other than death, damnation, and separation. But the gospel says this unspeakable gift gives us assurance of total forgiveness. Do you understand that? That my life with my past and sin is forgiven. It's gone. I don't live there anymore because of the gospel. The gospel says that I right now possess perfect righteousness. It is not my own. It is the righteousness imputed by Jesus Christ so that even in my brokenness, even in my sinful state, God looks at me through Christ's righteousness and declares me justified in his sight. I am fully accepted by God because of the merits of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and his ascension. I am now beloved and accepted. I'm a child of the king, and this is all by grace. By grace. No one is worthy of that. Is it any wonder we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound? And it is sweet when I understand that grace in the, in the backdrop of deserving death. And yet we're given life. It's amazing. And so when Paul says, okay, behave as citizens worthy of this gospel, we know intrinsically I can't do that. So what is he talking about? Well, this might help us if we use an example from our world today. Uh, I don't know if you know who Ronaldo is. If you don't, it probably means you're not a sports fan. You, you don't know soccer. But Ronaldo is one of the greatest players of our time now. He makes $65 million to play soccer. And so if I said to you, is Ronaldo worth $65 million? The answer, of course, is no. He, he's not, it's not worth $65 million to kick a soccer ball into a net. Th that would be crazy. One of the, the good things about our quarantine and pandemic, and there's terrible things, we understand that. But it's helped us to see our priorities and what's essential. And now we understand that, that sports, as much as we might miss it, is not essential. That Hollywood, which we should never miss, is not essential, right? So is he worth $65 million? And the answer is no. Maybe now we would think maybe our nurses and doctors might be worth that. Maybe McDonald's workers and grocery store workers and people that we didn't think were worth anything before this time are worth it. But the answer is no, we know that. But there is a sense that the owner, the team, the city he plays for, thinks that $65 million is worth it. And the question is why? Why would we think that when we know that can't be true? Well, because if he does what he was contracted to do, to put the ball in the net, to change the games, to win for his team, we have a sense that he is worth what he's being paid. He is expected to be consistent. He's expected to draw on his talents. He's expected to show the beauty of the game for those who understand it. And so, in a way, he is worth it. I was reading Scotty Smith this week, talking about this text, and he said, it's the same for the gospel. Uh, we live this gospel. Not just we know the information, 
but we live in accordance with that information. We are consistent with the truth of the gospel. So when Paul says, you and I, as, as good citizens, should live worthy of the gospel, what he's saying is our life should be consistent with that truth of the gospel. We should draw upon the resources of that gospel to live out this life. And our life, your life, and my life, ought to make this gospel of Jesus Christ look beautiful. Look beautiful. And so, when Paul gives this command now, we have to ask, okay, in light of what we have, we are not worthy of the gospel, and yet Paul wants us to live worthy of this gospel as we think of all that the gospel entails. What does this look like, like in the real life, in our life? And this is fantastic about the word of God. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make anything up. We don't have to give you our opinions this morning because Paul goes on to clarify what it means for you and for me to live a life that's so different, the world's attracted by it, and that is worthy of the gospel. Back in our text, he says, let your conversation be as becomes the gospel, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or else I be absent, I may hear of your fears that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, in order to behave in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, for the believer and for the church, the community, we must stand firm together. We are to be unified. One spirit, one mind, side by side for the gospel. There must be a sense of unity. Get it this morning. Our lives reflect the worthiness of the gospel when the church of Jesus Christ is unified together, one spirit, one mind, one goal, one mission, one purpose, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all of that, this unity. Brother and sister, unity this morning is not pretending that there are not differences in the body of Christ. There are huge differences. If you saw the pan this morning of our congregation, we have unicorns and bears and other things here this morning. It's totally different. And when Paul wrote this letter, think about the crowd that we know of. The church certainly grew. But those initial few, a white European working class guy, a wealthy, you know, fashion expert, a slave girl with lots of baggage. Here they are sitting side by side in the church and they're to be unified. One mind striving together. We are not pretending that there are not differences within the church of Jesus Christ. This morning I cannot help but think about our church. If I were looking out this morning about our congregation, just, just I know where you sit, I know where you belong, I know where you're supposed to be. And in our church we have those who are French, Macedonian, Asian, Indian, Colombian, Mexican. I mean, that, that's in our small congregation. We have the Dutch here. And I will not lower myself by saying wooden heads, wooden shoes, wouldn't listen. I would not ever say that, right, about our Dutch friends and family and loved ones. I wouldn't say that. But they're here. And not only do we have Dutch, we have Frisian. And apparently Frisian something other than Dutch, better than Dutch, is what I was told. I'm not sure about that, but, but I think I'm starting to dig a hole right now. And usually Kim is here to, to censor me and to shake her head at me. But since she's not here this morning, 
and probably watching this morning, uh, <laughs> I'm offending everyone. Might as well continue along those lines then. Um, we have Belgium folks here, the waffle people. They're awesome. Uh, we have the English in our church, right? Tea and crumpets and, and the stiff upper lip and, and their biting sarcasm. They're here. Not here, but they're here. We have Scotsmen, and no one understands a word they're saying. Have you ever listened to Ian? The only thing I know that he said was, that I ever understand is, wow, rubbish, rubbish. But, but other than that, I have no idea. I just look at him, and I smile, and, and I say, yes, Ian, I understand, right? They're, they're all here. They're here. And hillbillies as well, right? Dresslers. We're, we're hillbillies. Mountain mama, take me home kind of people. They're here. This is the church. Rich, poor, young, old, black, white, educated, uneducated, liberal, conservative, chocolate lovers, non-chocolate lovers. They're all here. And Paul says, let's not pretend that they're not differences. There are differences, but there needs to be a unity in this diversity. Where in the world could people from all those walks of life come and sit and love each other with all of those differences? Nowhere. Not like that, other than the Church of Christ. We're not pretending this morning that there are not differences, and we're not pretending that it's not difficult. You and I know, as we get outside of our comfort zones, that dealing with people and loving with people can be difficult. It's hard. A matter of fact, Paul uses a word as he's describing this, and the word is striving together. It means to wrestle alongside with the company that you're in. It's a struggle. And let's be honest, in our churches today, there are struggles. There are those in the church who have hurt us. My friend, if you've been in a church for two weeks... Someone's going to hurt you. We're in a fallen world. It happens, and it happens in our churches. There are those who we don't naturally care for. That there's something about them that just rubs us the wrong way. Now, not for me. I love everybody in our church, and no one rubs me the wrong way. But for some of you, you understand that. But they're here. Those that we're jealous of. There are people sitting in our midst, and they have more or they've got this and that, or their ministry is this, and, and there's jealousy that happens within the church. There are politics that are different. People see things politically not always the same, and yet they're under one roof. It is not easy. It's not. And God never said it was. But he did say that it's in the unity of those people that shouts to the world, there's something different happening in that place. Behaving as a citizen worthy of the gospel calls us to live unified. All of us. There, there is no, well, they're down here, and I'm up here, and I'm the grand, grand poobah of servanthood, and you're just a slave. There's none of that. It's unity. And so you and I must be honest with our own prejudice. Whether it's Dutch or Frisian, hillbilly or high class, We've got to be honest with who we think we are. We must examine our selfishness. We must confront our true motives and agendas. We must look at our own pride and arrogancy. And the truth is, in order for this to work in the church, we must die to self. 
our self-will, our self-ambition, our self-importance, our self-promotion. How do I do this? I'm glad you asked. We do it by looking at the example of Jesus Christ. Christ, God incarnate in the flesh, humbled himself. We'll see about it in the, in the weeks to come. The beautiful song of Christ in, in, in Philippians chapter 2 here. But we see Christ's sacrificial life. We see his humility. And for the believer this morning, if we're going to live worthy of this gospel as citizens of, of heaven, we must look at the example of Jesus. We came to Christ by simply looking to him. That's what we did. We didn't do anything. We didn't work for it. We looked to Jesus. Look and live. And in order to live a life of unity, we must continue to look to Jesus Christ. We must start to look now like the God that we say we follow. But it's not just the example of Jesus. It's also the exaltation of the gospel. The gospel. We don't have unity in the church because we're all the same race or the same political persuasion, or we all like peanut butter. That, that's, that's not what keeps the church unified. As we see Christ and his humility and his sacrifice, and we seek to emulate that, we also understand that what Paul is talking about here in unifying the church, it is the exaltation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is his church. That we are unified because we only have one goal. One goal. It's the gospel. To know it, to proclaim it, to love it, and to live it. And when the church as a body, no matter who you are or where you're from or what your past or what your baggage is, when the church understands we're going to exalt Jesus Christ and the only goal that we have, the goal that takes precedent over everything, is the gospel of Jesus Christ then, and only then, is there real unity in the church of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Now, in our text, we're reminded that Paul says, okay, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. We must be unified. But as we notice the text, there's this sequence that happens, and it always happens. Life is full of sequences, is it not? In life, sin always brings death. Blessings always follow obedience. Uh, if you're faithful in little things, you then will be faithful in big things. And as the gospel is spread, it always brings suffering. Look at the text. He says in verse number 28, And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition or destruction, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul says, okay, listen, when the church is serious about this idea of presenting the gospel, living the gospel, being unified in the gospel, the next sequence of events is suffering. It's suffering. Now, understand this morning that whether you're saved, if you know Christ or not, everyone suffers. Everyone. That, that, that's life in our fallen world. And understand this. In our text and throughout the Bible, not all suffering is because of sin. 
Remember, Jesus was walking with the disciples. There was a blind man, and they said, Hey, Lord, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that this problem has happened and why he's suffering? And Jesus said, No, 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 no. None. Neither. It's for the glory of God. And so when Paul's talking about suffering, we understand that, that it's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. Sometimes we do suffer because of ourselves. There's a statement that I, I like, and I think it's true. Everything happens for a reason. And sometimes the reason is because you made a terrible decision, right? If we live our lives for 80 years smoking cigarettes, chances are that won't turn out well for us. If we decide that Little Debbie snack packs are good for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, after time you might be a little diabetic, right? Those things happen. If your retirement plan was a casino, you might be in trouble, right? There are decisions we make. And, and so Paul is not just talking about, hey, just suffering of any type of suffering. What he's saying is, as the church becomes serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ, as they are unified, as they see it as their one goal in life, and they try to live that out, suffering will happen. Now, we have not experienced the suffering that, that they experienced in Philippi, but, but you will suffer for Christ. I, I don't know what you expected when you came to Christ. Some of you folks, maybe someone said to you, well, just trust in Jesus. And if you just trust in Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. All of your wildest dreams will come true. You'll never have any trouble anywhere, ever. My friend, if someone told you that, they lied to you. They just flat out lied to you. Paul says, hey, you saw the suffering me in me? You're going to see it too, and when you do, don't, don't waver. Stay firm. He goes on to tell us later on to be... Uh, to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He then reminds us that anyone who lives godly shall suffer persecution. And the very words of our Savior, he said, if they hate me and my message, they're going to hate you. In this world, you will have tribulation. And, and so, so I don't know what you expected, but I'm telling you now, if you and I will be unified as a church where the gospel becomes the most important thing in our life, then the next sequence of events will be suffering. Suffering. Now, this morning, we may not be in danger in our lives as the first century believers were or as some 21st century believers are today in China, North Korea, right? Sudan, Iran. But I promise you this, there is trouble coming for the believer and the church community who is unified about this gospel and loudly proclaims and proudly proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ. It will happen. A couple years ago in our government, our federal government decided that if you did not check off the boxes about their morality, they would withhold funding for a summer jobs program. And so we, we couldn't Check the boxes. And, and we were hurt in that light. I just found out this morning that the federal government's trying to do the same thing with some of the, the money that they're giving out now, that if you don't agree with their morality, then you will suffer. And, and we don't agree with their morality. 
And it's, it is an attack on Christianity. It's amazing to me that the people who claim that Christians are intolerant are the people who are intolerant of Christians. And brother, sister, I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just telling you the fact of the matter is there's a sequence in life. And when the church finally gets serious about their faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ, darkness never likes it. Right? The light exposes that. And so when we share our faith, when we defend our biblical morality, there's going to be pushback from this. And Paul says, when suffering comes, and it will, don't be fearful. Why? Because when we're not fearful in the face of suffering as a unified body, when we are unwavering, it convicts the lost. They say, how in the world can they continue to believe and to preach and to practice and live this out with boldness, with courage, with hope, with a winsome spirit that this is truth and we can believe this truth? It convicts them. Not only that, it comforts us. We know as a unified body, as our goal of the gospel, and as suffering comes, we can't withstand. We will waver. We will dissolve unless we're strengthened by the Spirit of God. And he encourages us. It shouts to the world there's something more important than our safety, comfort, and acceptance. And so Paul says, understand this, believer. When we are unified, we must be unwavering because suffering will happen. And so, brother and sister in Christ this morning, let me encourage you to be unified. Nowhere in the world, nowhere in the world, not in a bar, not in a sporting venue, not in a gathering of people of like-mindedness with a hobby. Nowhere in the world does unity happen like it happens in the church when the church is of one mind, one mind, one goal, one mission. It's a beautiful thing. It really is the only place on the planet that red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, educated and uneducated can come together and by the grace of God be unified there's something more important than my way, my thoughts, my politics, my ideas, my preferences. It's the gospel. We must be unified. And as we're unified and suffering comes, we must be unwavering. You know, it's easy to praise Jesus when everybody thinks Christianity is okay, but not so much when we become those who are so intolerant, and we start to struggle through it. And all suffering, right? We can praise the Lord when life is good, when money's in the bank, our jobs are good, but what happens when we get pushback now from our culture? What happens when we lose our jobs? What happens when cancer or sickness comes about? We must be unwavering. This is a difference that attracts the world. Why? Because in the fact that we're unified and unwavering, we as a people shout out that he is worthy. That Jesus is worthy of all of it. Sinclair Ferguson said, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And so, brother and sister in Christ, may we behave as citizens who are worthy of this gospel. That we would be unified and unwavering in the face of any storm or suffering that comes our way. So what do we do this morning? If that's not us, if we listen to something, well, I'm not quite there. Well, number one, repent. 
Repentance is a good word. It means change your mind, change your attitude. We do it when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're going our own way. We ran that hellbound race. We repent and turn. As believers now, when we're confronted with truth and the way we think, we repent when we say that was wrong, my behavior, my attitude toward brothers and sisters in Christ, toward being unified, toward the goals that we have as a church. I repent of that. And then I struggle through. It's not easy to love people. This group this morning is the easiest people to love. A bunch of stuffed animals and balloon heads. Real easy. But in real life, humanity is difficult. It is a struggle. But we must be committed to that struggle knowing that Christ loved us in our ugliness and the light and love of the gospel is to be shed abroad from us to others. Rest in his sovereignty. Whether we have success or suffering, our God is in control. He knows what's happening. We can trust him and look to Jesus. I wonder oftentimes when the Bible says, be ready always to give an answer to every man of the reason of the hope that's in you. I wonder if we're never asked that question ever by anyone because there's no difference in our lives that is truly attractive. And Paul says that should not be the case. We have the privilege of knowing Christ this morning, the Savior who loved us, who left heaven for our salvation, who then ascended and gave us a spirit. We know him. We have the privilege of being citizens of his kingdom. And in light of that, we should be living out in accordance to what he'd have us to live, making the gospel the most important thing and being willing to suffer for it. And then, maybe then, when the world finally sees that there's something more important than everything else in our lives, it's Christ and his gospel, maybe they'll ask the question, what is it about your life? Can you give me an answer for the reason that hope? May that be the case this morning. So, brother and sister in Christ, let us behave as good citizens and be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, it's convicting as we look at the life of Paul and these early believers as they had one mind. Every walk of life coming together under the unity of the gospel where there was love, there was acceptance. No matter the past, the baggage, the success, the failure, there was tremendous love. They had one mind. And Lord, not only did they have one mind, but as they shared that, as it expanded and they suffered because of it, they were unwavering. Father, forgive us. We have become lazy and scared and divisive over things that don't matter. Lord, may your church rise up. May we repent. May we see that we must be unified under this gospel. We, we must be unwavering in the face of any storm. And it is then when we actually look like citizens of this kingdom. May we then show that we are living in a life that's worthy of this gospel. And so, Lord, starting today, Help us. Help us to turn to you, to look to you, to trust in you, to bring about this change in our hearts and lives so that we could be worthy, live a life that is worthy of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.